Well, good morning. I want to begin by saying just how grateful I am to be joining all of you in worship here today. I also want to welcome all of you who are watching online. So great to have you from afar. You know, I've loved being here at Bell Prez this past year, and I'm excited to see what year two has in store as I step into this interim role with the high school department. You know, as for the summer, we had a great, great summer in the family life world, running around from camp to camp to camp. And I, and I love that extended time uh, that we got to spend, that precious time that we got to spend with some of our students. You know, one of those camps was our middle school camp. We went to this place called Camp Furwood up in Bellingham. You know, and those folks had everything, everything a kid could ever dream of, including something called the Honey Hut. You know, parents had deposited money in an account beforehand, and then the kids would go each day to this magical, magical place where they could get candy, soda, you name it. I mean, brilliant camp idea, right? Independence, a taste of financial freedom, candy. I mean, what more could a kid want? But to get what you wanted from the Honey Hut meant you, you know, at a camp like this meant you had to stand in some long, long lines. You know, and all the kids had a different approach to minimize the waiting. You know, someone would race down at the beginning of the lunch hour, try to box each other out like they're going for a loose rebound, try to get to the front of the line. You know, other kids would wait during free time, let the line die down, down a little bit, and then step in. You know, and these kids, they were standing in the same lines that all of us are standing in. You know, the lines of our lives, whether it's at the grocery store, airport, sports games, sitting in traffic, you know, hoping to shorten the waiting. You know, but those, you know, albeit frustrating, you know, those are the easy lines of life. You know, all too moment our lives are filled with those pressing moments that are truly out of our control. You know, where it feels like all you can do is wait. You know, moments where you feel like you are hopelessly standing and waiting in line. You know, moments like, will my, will my marriage ever get better? Will my coworkers and I ever be able to coexist? Will my cancer finally subside? Will I ever get out of debt? You know, moments just like this Canaanite woman is experiencing, because she's really not all that different from us. You know, will, will her daughter, who is suffering terribly, ever be healed of this demon? And so this morning, beautifully, we get a front row seat into this woman's experience as she tries to figure out something that all of us as Christians are trying to figure out. And it's the question of how do you approach Jesus? I mean, how do you approach Jesus when you're waiting for something? You know, when the need is great, when time seems to be running out. You know, what can we learn from this morning, from this woman, about how to approach Jesus in our waiting? Well, throughout it all, this story moves real fast and stripping with tension. This woman crying out, hurrying to Jesus, begging him for help, her daughter suffering terribly. I mean, that alone is enough drama to carry one story. Yet in her request, she's met with silence. Jesus strangely goes silent. There's got to be something more going on here. I mean, maybe it's just bad timing. Jesus has been working tirelessly, and in Mark's version of the story, it says that Jesus wanted to withdraw for a little bit. He didn't want to see anyone. You know, maybe it's like getting a work-related call on a Saturday and thinking to yourself, couldn't this have waited till Monday? Like, you know, maybe Jesus is having a human moment. Maybe he just needed a break. You know, we'll, we'll never really know. But maybe what's most impressive in this early part of the story is that even in the midst of Jesus' silence, this woman isn't going anywhere. She doesn't make that common assumption that silence has to mean rejection, that silence has to mean no. I mean, sure, silence has some pretty strong negative connotations at times. You know, if you go silent when your wife asks you how she's looking in that dress, that's going to end pretty poorly for you. 
But it's all too easy to assume that silence has to mean no. You know, there are so many instances where the authority figures in our life, whether it's a parent, a teacher, a boss, or even Jesus himself, who choose the path of silence because when faced with our request, they see a bigger picture. They see a level of complexity that the person asking cannot see. So what's all the complexity here? Well, Jesus is in a real pickle. You know, having this Gentile woman approach him, asking for his help, is putting him in a position that he surely wasn't anticipating. Because up until this point, his whole earthly ministry has been focused on Israel. He's Israel's Messiah. Son of David, King of the Jews. Now we've got to mention up front that God's rescue mission, his plan of salvation will absolutely include the Gentiles. It includes you and me and all the other Gentiles out there. You know, the whole book of Acts, which we recently finished a sermon series on, is based on the fact that salvation is available to Jews and Gentiles too. But here in Matthew, a few books earlier, here at this point in the gospel story, we're, we're just not there yet. Right now, it's all about the Jews, and the Gentiles are going to have to wait. I mean, he's even told his disciples a few chapters back, don't bother with the Gentiles, just focus on Israel. And so now in this pickle, he's got to make a decision. Do I stay true to the mission God has given me, he's thinking, of bringing salvation to the Jews first and turn down this woman in the process? Or do I contradict what I've said before and do I heal this Gentile woman's daughter who has some of the greatest faith I've seen yet? Here's a much simpler way to think about it. You know, I imagine a line of people trying to get to Jesus. It's Jews first, up front next to him. Gentiles are back, a distant second. So what has this woman essentially done? I mean, whether she realizes it or not, what she's essentially done is she's committed the greatest injustice that any kid or middle schooler has ever known. She's cut the line. She's cut in line. And so the real pressing question is, is Jesus going to let her get away with cutting in line? Is he going to let her get away with her bold attempt to jump ahead of everybody else and get in the front of the line? I mean, could you imagine if one of our, one of our middle schoolers did this at the honey hut? It'd be chaos. I mean, kids will push a lot of boundaries. Middle schoolers will push a lot of boundaries, but they always respect the sacredness of the line. And for a bit here in the midst of the disciples whining, essentially telling her to go to the back of the line, and in light of Jesus' comments, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel, it seems like the answer is going to be no. It seems like she's going to be turned away. Yet what does this woman do? She keeps boldly, shockingly, continues to hurry, keeps pressing in all the more. She continues to approach Jesus. She's on her knees now, begging Jesus, repeatedly begging Jesus, Lord, please help me. And make no mistake about it, it's her faith, her belief that Jesus can actually do something that's driving the narrative forward here. But I also have to imagine that she's entered into full-on mom mode, right? Her motherly instincts are kicking in, into high gear. I mean, even in my adult age, when my mom is driving, and I'm in the passenger seat, and she's got to put on the brakes real hard on the highway. I mean, what does every mom instinctively do? I mean, right, come on, with me, right, yeah? Instinct, go for it. I mean, she's a mother. This woman's a mother. She can't help it. You really think at this point she's going to turn away? 
and say she gave it her best? And so it's right at this moment where this woman completely steps into full-on mom mode that we now get to the strangest, the strangest part of the story. Jesus responds to this woman's relentless begging by offering her a parable. It's a very short parable, but nonetheless a parable. And he says this, it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs. Didn't see that one coming. You know, at first glance, it seems as if Jesus is doing his best to end the conversation and lay down his final trump card, like he's trying to walk off the stage and drop the proverbial mic. But we've got to remember, we've got to know that parables never worked that way. I mean, parables were never meant to end a conversation. They were always meant to invite people further in. You know, always a way to bring someone further into a conversation. I mean, they were a way for people to see and explore the great depths of Jesus' kingdom. So in an odd sort of way, Jesus is giving this woman a chance to speak, a chance to engage, a chance to show the great depths of her faith. And yeah, even in that, Jesus calls this woman and her fellow Gentiles a dog. And that alone... I mean, maybe some of you aren't really all that offended by this. You know, we live in a country that has more dogs in homes than children. And that statistic alone is probably worthy of its own sermon, not to mention some sociological studies. But dogs weren't as highly regarded in Jesus' day. I mean, no doggy daycare, no clothes for dogs, no Christmas cards where the families genuinely list the dog as a legitimate member of the family. You know, we tend to like dogs around here. But in the time and culture of Jesus' day, in a land far, far away from Husky Stadium, being called a dog was not a compliment. I mean, dogs were unclean monsters. But so to take off the edge just a little bit, the word that Jesus has used here is actually puppy. It's a household dog. And so if you'll go with me here, I'd like to believe that Jesus is thinking of a little puppy golden retriever. And so Jesus is probably a little bit gentler than we might initially imagine, but a puppy is still no child. It's a part of the family, but it's still no child. And so the message is clear that in the same way that you feed your children first and your dogs second, my plan of salvation is ordered Jew first, Gentile second. And lady, you are not the priority right now. So what's this woman going to do? What can she say at this point? I mean, she could understandably let frustration take over, be incensed that Jesus would have the audacity to call her a dog and storm off. I mean, she could go the entitlement route, play up the customer's always right routine, maybe say something like, but I deserve this, give me what I want. I mean, she could choose to be stubborn and argumentative and say, Jesus, I think your plan of salvation is dumb. Why do you have to be so exclusive? Why does order matter anyway? But she doesn't do that. Nor does she swing the other way. You know, she doesn't walk away defeated. She doesn't walk away bruised and battered with her tail between her legs, slowly finding her way to the back of the line. And she doesn't even make one of those half-hearted, fleeting eye contact, passive attempts with a dozen caveats where she could say, like, you know, okay, but, you know, it would be great, you know, if you have any time this week. I mean, she doesn't, I mean, that is just as annoying and frustrating of a way for someone to ask something of us. But instead, her response shows a radical way 
to approach Jesus in our waiting, a way that is confident yet humble, assertive yet non-threatening, where she still knows that Jesus is in control, and she says, yes, it is, Lord. Yes, it is, Lord, because even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. You know, it's just one of a couple places where Jesus is amazed. You know, amazed that, amazed in a good way. You know, too often he's got his hands in his face, baffled at how the disciples could be so foolish, so dense. But not here. Not now. So why is Jesus so amazed? I mean, what, what am I missing here? Did she crack some kind of code, solve some kind of Jesus Rubik's Cube? Well, as we pull back the curtain a little bit, what's so impressive about her response is that not only that she's rightly identified the things that the parable represent, but she also knows, she also knows how the parable is going to end. You see, her answer is evidence that she's aware of God's future promises that were said to one day come. You know, she knows that there is hope, even for her and for her demon-possessed daughter. She sees acts happening right now. You know, she knows her Old Testament, She knows the promises that were given to Abraham, that Abraham's descendants, that the nation of Israel would one day be made great through a special descendant of Abraham, and that Israel would then be a blessing to all the nations, overflowing to the Gentiles. And so she's been waiting in line, singing that catchy little Sunday school song all along, hoping for those lyrics to finally become true, that Father Abraham had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham, and I am one of them, and so are you if you believe in Jesus Christ. So let's just praise the Lord. I mean, what's so impressive about her response is that she knows that the children of Israel who stand in the front of the line will have plenty of bread. There's more to go around here that's going to fall on the floor enough for Jews and Gentiles alike. And so she's saying in the most raw of moments, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord, I get it. I know I cut in line. I know I'm a little bit early here trying to speed up the process, trying to hurry everything up. But I'm ready now. Jesus, I'm ready now. Have mercy on me, Lord, and please, oh, please, oh, please, unworthy Gentile puppy that I am, give me now what I don't deserve, what no one will deserve, what I never will deserve, your love, your healing, your salvation. You know, she believes that God's promises are true. And that his future promises can start happening right now. I mean, as Jesus so simply puts it, faith. She's hurrying, approaching Jesus with the things she's waiting for and begs him, hurry up. And so Jesus, upon hearing this request, rewards her faith, says, your request is granted your daughter healed. I mean, it'd be a nice place to stop, right? You know, part of me wants to tie a nice little bow right here and on a high note with Jesus, rewarding this woman's faith, healing her daughter. But the more and more and more I think about it, we just can't. We can't end there. Because in an odd sort of way, it's the high note here at the end of the story that's actually the most troubling for me. Because what are we supposed to say to the family 
who has a dying child who hurries up to Jesus day after day, persistently praying, embracing the silence, getting on their knees, calling out to Jesus, and yet they're still waiting. Or worse yet, their child dies. You know, what are we supposed to say? That their faith wasn't strong enough? That their faith wasn't faithful enough? I don't think any of us are willing to draw that kind of conclusion. You know, I think at the end of the day, we have to hold on to the very thing this Canaanite woman held on to, her steadfast belief in God's promises. You know, the promises that we can hold on to, the ones that God has given us, that he will never leave us nor forsake us, that he will always be with you, the ones that we can share with one another as a community and cling on to as we hear the silence, as we feel that we are endlessly waiting. And even more, may we wait expectantly for the promise that's yet to come, the promise of a new creation. It's a new heaven, a new earth. It's the next part of the story where everything that has gone wrong will be redeemed, where what is broken will be made new, our tears no more, where sin will no longer be. You know, it's the complete fulfillment of your deepest God-given desires, the ones that you've been thinking about and waiting for and hoping for and wishing for all along. Our relationships redeemed, our work fulfilling, sickness and disease gone forevermore. But as you wait, remember this woman Remember that waiting on Jesus is never passive. There's nothing passive about this woman. So be active. Hurry up to Jesus. Get out from the back of the line. Run up to the front. And so what is it that you want to say to Jesus this morning? Where do you want to say to Jesus, I know I'm a little bit early here. I know I'm trying to cut the line, cut in line, but I need you now. I'm ready for your future promises right here, right now. Now, Jesus, hurry up. And as you wait, take heart for that bright future that will one day come, where someday, where someday the silence will be over, the pain will be no more. We'll be laughing, singing, dancing with Jesus for all eternity. There'll be me and you, this Canaanite woman, and her daughter, too. Please pray with me. Jesus, we thank you for this morning. Lord, we thank you for your word, although, albeit difficult and challenging that it is. Father, we pray that we would be running up to you this morning in prayer, boldly going up to you with confidence and humility in the things that we are waiting for and all the things we long for. Jesus, we pray this in your name. Amen.